Let me invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 12. If you're visiting with us today, we're glad that you are here. And I uh, just want to let you know that I um, appreciate your visit and also uh, want to let you know that our normal pattern here is to preach through uh, a book through, uh, through the morning service and then also a book in the evening service. So right now we're going through the book of Exodus and the evening we're going through the book of Luke. And uh, so we are in Exodus chapter 12 and we have seen quite a bit of God's judgment come on the people of Egypt who are holding Israel under oppression. When the people of Israel first arrived in Egypt, there were only 70 men in total. That was when Joseph had come over and in good favor had had uh, called his family to come with them. And so his father and all of his brothers and their children came. There were only 70 men when they first arrived. And they arrived to the great favor of Pharaoh. The Pharaoh, the king at that time, recognized how blessed he was because of Joseph's God and how Joseph's God had protected Egypt and provided for Egypt. But then in Exodus 1, as we saw, there, there arose another Pharaoh in Egypt who did not know Joseph, nor the things that he had done, and we could add, nor the things that God had done through Joseph. And so instead of showing favor to Israel, this Pharaoh made them his servants. And each successive pharaoh for the next four centuries would do the same thing. Egypt was intimidated by Israel as they began to expand in number. If only the Jews would learn how to fight in battle, then they could eventually overthrow potentially the greatest nation in the world, Egypt. And so in order to keep that from happening, each pharaoh kept the Jews busy. They would work them hard and even... Um, made their days extremely long so they didn't have time to think about battle and how to over, overpower Egypt. Well, as the Jews continued to grow in number, Pharaoh knew that it was only a matter of time before Israel rose up in opposition to him. And so he tried to kill all the baby boys. He tried to first do it in secret by compelling the midwives who were delivering these babies to immediately kill them after they, born, they were born. But the midwives would not comply. And so, he tried to kill them by having his own men go throughout all of the Israelite uh, tents, taking all the baby boys and throwing them into the Nile River. And they were able to kill many babies this way. But God would protect one baby, one baby boy through Pharaoh's own daughter, in fact. And this boy would grow up in Egypt. He would learn the ways of Egypt, but he also knew where he was originally from. He knew his ethnic people, the Jews. And when he went to go find out what kind of things they were going through in the land of Egypt under Pharaoh's oppression, he found out that they were being mistreated. And so, in order to try to protect them, he killed one of Pharaoh's own men. And when Pharaoh found out about it, he wanted Moses dead. Moses was this man whom God protected. As a result, Moses fled to Midian for 40 years. And during that time, Pharaoh continued to make life miserable for Israel, all the ones that he had under his power. And also that during that time, while Moses was away, God was training Moses. He was helping Moses to see how to shepherd flocks, since one day he would shepherd God's people, as we'll see here in the next several chapters. Well, finally, Moses comes back when God calls him to go back, and he goes to deliver Israel from 
the hand of the Pharaoh, from the hand of Egypt. Now, when the Jews came into Egypt, remember there were only 70 men, probably fighting men, that's probably referring to. And yet when they leave, 430 years later, there are over 600,000 fighting men. How is God going to rescue such a large group of people who had no military training? How was God going to bring the people out from under the hand of Egypt so that they could worship Him at Mount Sinai? That's what God wanted. He said, let my people go to Pharaoh so that they may worship me. And they needed to come to Mount Sinai and worship God. Well, we we learn some of what God is doing here at the end of chapter 12. Let me read beginning in verse 29, Exodus chapter 12. This is the Word of God. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people both you and the sons of Israel, and go, worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go, and bless me also. The Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We will all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, with their kneading bowls bound up in the clothes of their shoulders. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. They baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread for it had not become leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years, and at the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. The judgment of the wicked and the salvation of God's people is something that must be remembered. And as we get to verses 42 to 51, we'll see that that God is showing this great deliverance here in the verses that we have read. And then in verses 42 through 51, He shows that this is something that needs to be remembered for future generations. This is the culmination of the destruction or, or, or the plagues that are coming on Egypt. God has sent many plagues, nine plagues in fact, on the people of Egypt so that they could be woken up to the fact that God is the true God. Pharaoh is not the true God. The Nile is not the true God. The sun is not the true God. The the Egyptians worshipped all these different gods. And they thought that they were indestructible. And God wanted to show them that He, in fact, was the true and living God. And so He did that through the judgment that He was bringing upon them with these plagues, culminating in this plague, and also through the deliverance of His people. The judgment of Egypt is seen in verses 29 and 30. God, remembered, had promised to strike the firstborn of every household in Egypt. Pharaoh had been warned in chapter 11, verses 4 and 5, 
let my people go or else each person, each firstborn son is going to die. Israel also was notified in chapter 12. They recognized that they had an opportunity to avoid this destruction that was coming if they would put the blood on the doorposts. We need to recognize here in verse 29 that God was the agent of death. Notice verse 29, Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. It was the Lord who brought it about. This should not be surprising to us if we have been following the line of argument that's been going on in chapter 11, verse 4 and 5, when God warned Pharaoh, He said, I am going out in the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn shall die. In other words, I'm going to do it. In chapter 12, verse 12, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Verse 23, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And then here in verse 29, The Lord struck all the firstborn. God is the agent who brings about this plague. In some sense, God is responsible. In the ultimate sense, God is is responsible for this death that comes upon these firstborn. The scope of the death that's seen in Egypt is every household. Notice again verse 29. Now it came about at midnight, the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of the cattle as well. So no one was exempt from the death that was coming upon the Egyptians. All the Egyptians would experience it to the point where there was no household, notice the end of verse 30, there was no home where there was not someone dead. So as I mentioned a few weeks ago, it could be that every, uh, that every home had a son who died or maybe they had a relative, a close relative who they knew had died. But more likely, based on verse 30, it seems to me that every firstborn son died and those who didn't have firstborn sons would lose their firstborn daughter. If, they, if a household was without a son, they would lose their firstborn daughter. So that every single home in the land of Egypt, you had this great pain of death. Notice the sorrow of Egypt in verse 30. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. Israel, in chapter 3, had cried out because of the oppression of the work that they had to do under the Egyptians in chapter 3. But now here, Egypt is crying out from the judgment of God. Israel was experiencing the judgment of Egypt, and now Egypt is experiencing the judgment of God, and they're crying out. And chapter 11, verse 6 tells us that this would be a cry that would be unprecedented. unprecedented. Never in history, in the history of Egypt, had there ever been such a great cry, and never again would there be. And this cry apparently was heard for miles. Look at uh, verse 30 again. After uh, Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. Um, and, and so this was probably a cry that was heard for for miles. It reminds me of a story that Mike and uh, Don Jewell were telling us when they first arrived in Brazil. Uh, Sean Alexander, their ministry partner, took him over to his house to watch Brazil play in the World Cup. And if you know anything about uh, the rest of the world besides the United States, the only sport is soccer. 
And so they were watching this game, and it happened to be Brazil versus the United States. And when the United States scored a goal, or or Brazil scored on themselves or something, Mike was cracking jokes, but they didn't take that uh, as a joke. They took their soccer very seriously. But as uh, when Brazil did finally score, uh, the 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 house just erupted, and Sean said, "Hurry, go outside on the porch." And and Mike didn't really understand what was going on, but he went out on the porch, and he said he heard something that he had never heard before. It was like a ripple effect, that that he could hear shouts from the distance because basically the entire area, the entire country shuts down when Brazil plays soccer, and and they were all rooting for the same team, obviously, and so he heard this this roar from the distance that just swelled um, uh, into his into that porch. I imagine the sounds of these horrifying cries resounded in that way, just for miles, because these homes were full of, of sorrow that was all happening at the same time. The result of this judgment on Egypt was actually the, the deliverance of Israel. That's what verses 31 through 36 are about. The judgment of Egypt results in the deliverance of Israel. In verse 31, we see that Pharaoh demands this exodus. He called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel. Now, if you know anything about Pharaoh and what he's been doing up until this point, he has been very resistant from Israel leaving. He doesn't want them to go because he knows when they leave, they will not come back. And that's, in fact, what, what the plan was. It was so that they could worship God and so that God could take them to the promised land, the land of Canaan. The last time that Pharaoh saw Moses and Aaron in chapter 10, verse 28, he said, I'm never going to see your face again. And so it could be here in verse 31 of chapter 12 that Pharaoh actually just sends a message through a messenger. But the same verb that's used here for called, that's translated called, is the same verb that's used in several other places to refer to the plagues, and it's, and it's actually Pharaoh summoning them, having them come into his presence. So likely Pharaoh goes back on his word saying, I'm never going to see you again. To actually, No, I'm actually going to see you one more time. Now get out of here. Okay? You take all of your people and your animals, go and worship God as you have been requesting. Now Pharaoh here could be fuming with anger. He could be, get out of here. I don't want to see anything bad happen to our people again. He could be screaming at them. But I think that the mood that he has is more like a humiliated, defeated enemy. One who has shocked that God could produce this much destruction on such a powerful nation. Remember, Egypt is the world's superpower. They are the world empire at this time. And for God to come and, and bring them to their knees suggests something about what Pharaoh's doing here, that he is coming humiliated, surprised that he could be defeated. And he says in verse 32, Take both your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and go and bless me also. Pharaoh, when Moses had asked, or demanded, I should say, that that, that he let them go, Pharaoh had given some concessions. He said, well, how about instead of you taking all your people and your animals and going to Mount Sinai, how about you just worship here in the land? Moses said, no, that's not acceptable. God said for us to go. The second, that was in chapter 8, verse 29. The second time that, that Pharaoh gives a concession, he says, well, how about just your men go? Leave all the women and children here, all your animals. 
You just take the men. That's all you asked for, right? And Moses says, no, that's not acceptable either. We need all of us. The third time in chapter 10, verse 24, he says, all right, fine, everybody can go, but just keep the livestock here, knowing that if they went to worship, they'd have to come back and get the livestock. But Moses says, no, that's not acceptable either. But here he says, go, you and all your people and your flocks and your herds, get out of here. He says, drive them and this is what God had predicted in chapter 11, verse 1, that, that He will drive you out completely. And then He gives this unique or this kind of peculiar expression here at the end of verse 32. He says, and bless me also. So go worship your Lord and bless me also. It's probably a prayer request from a pantheist, someone who believes in multiple gods and just hoping that he can be covered a little bit more. He knows that God is powerful. He hasn't come to the place where he submitted himself to Him that is, in accepting Him as His promised Redeemer. But it shows how much Pharaoh has been humbled. I mean, can you imagine Pharaoh saying something like this? Go, you and all your people, and bless me also. Could you imagine him saying that when he first met Moses? Certainly not. He was resistant to him. This exodus of Israel is demanded by not only Pharaoh in verses 31 and 32, but it's demanded by the people of Egypt in verses 33 to 36. They bowed low, verse 33. The Egyptians urged the people to send them out in haste. In chapter 11, verse 8, the, the text tells us there that, that they, they would bow low. Uh, All these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, you and all your people. Moses is predicting what's going to happen based on what God had told him. That, that they would bow in bow to the people of Israel and say, please leave us. Israel left in haste Haste in verse 34. They took their dough before it was leavened. This was a reminder of how quick they needed to get out of the country. Remember, this is part of the Passover meal that the Jews would celebrate for centuries. And this was a significant... This was a significant thing that God allowed them to plunder the Egyptians' goods. Notice verse 34. People took their... uh, Verse 35. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Think about how plundering normally happens. Uh, A powerful country comes in or a nation comes in and destroys another place, a city or or even a whole nation, and then they forcefully take everything they want. Here, they're actually requesting goods from the Egyptians. Yes, Israel has won because God has won, but instead of actually forcing their way into houses and stealing things, they go and ask the Egyptians, can we take some of your gold and silver and some of your clothing? The Egyptians say, yes, gladly take whatever you want. And this is how God allows Israel to plunder the Egyptians. And if we think about it, Israel is going to be wandering in the wilderness. We know that it's going to take place for the next 40 years. But even if they took a direct route from Egypt to Canaan, it would still take several weeks or months to get there. That many people, it would take certainly that long. And so how how were their lives going to be sustained for these months? ahead of them. 
The answer is that they get to take all their livestock and they get to take all of the goods of the Egyptians. And so we read that the Egyptians favored them and agreed to their requests. In a finite way, the Egyptians were fearful of what might happen to them. Look at the end of verse 33. Okay, the Egyptians or beginning says the Egyptians urged the people. The end of the verse says, "For they said, we will all be dead." They they were fearful of what could possibly happen next. And uh, so we recognize that God is in control of the hearts evil even of these evil Egyptians. He he causes them to do what he wants, to be willing to pass over these goods to Israel. This is something that God had promised to Moses in chapter 3, and He even promised it to Abraham, that they would leave with the possessions of the Egyptians in Genesis 15, 14. And it's noteworthy that Israel doesn't sneak out the back door. Remember Jacob, when he was being swindled by his father-in-law Laban, remember how he left with his wives, Leah and Rachel, how he left in the middle of the night and he effectively uh, walked out the back door. But here, they effectively walk out the front door with the approval of the Egyptians. Like, open up the gates, make them wide, because we've got a lot of stuff here that we're carrying, a lot of people. And and on our way out, we'd actually like to have a, a shopping spree. We'd like to go through and just take whatever we want as well. And it's, it's amazing that God is powerful to to take such a powerful nation and bring them to their knees and allow Israel to leave in this way. God's judgment of Egypt actually brings about the deliverance of Israel. And I would suggest to you that that God's judgment of the wicked will result in your final salvation. That, That in order for you to be vindicated and to be seen as right, the wicked have to be punished. And uh, we, we don't count ourselves as righteous on anything that we have done, but on the mercy of God, that, that He has chosen us like He's chosen Israel. Not that we're better than... Israel wouldn't say that they were better than the Egyptians. It's just that God had chosen them. He'd put His special favor on them. And that's how we are in Christ, that, that we are chosen and favored by God. And, and yet there will be wicked who will be judged because of their sin. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is, is, uh, is experienced here in verses 37 to 39. You have uh, a, a number of people, verse 37, about 600,000 men on foot. So if you add in the women and children, there's probably 2 million people or more that were coming out of Egypt. They were part of this great exodus. In addition to that, you had several of um, Moses' family who were Midianites, if you remember. And then also you had some Egyptians who apparently came along because uh, in verse 38 it says there was a mixed multitude. So in addition to Jews, there were probably some other Semitic people as well. In verse 39, they take their unleavened bread and uh, they're not able to see this, uh, to put the yeast in there. The point is that God wants them to recognize that you need to leave in haste. This this is a time that you need to remember that, that you need to leave in haste. And if we know the rest of the story, we know that we remember that, that, that Egypt actually changed its mind, right? And Pharaoh and his armies actually come after Israel and they meet him at the, the Red Sea. So it's a good thing that they did leave in haste as they are doing. In verses 42 to 51, 
we have a reminder of this ordinance of Passover. We have additional instructions for Israel so that they would know how to deal with strangers in the coming generations. That they are supposed to uh, they're supposed to be a part of the Israelite community in order to take part in this Passover celebration. In fact, foreigners and sojourners and hired servants were not supposed to take a part unless they had become proselytes. They had taken on the Jewish uh, law, and and uh, so they were. This whole this whole Exodus was supposed to be perpetually reminded. To, it was supposed to be a perpetual reminder to them through this. Passover celebration. That is that that they would, during this Passover, put blood on their doorposts to remind them that God had come through and struck the Egyptians, the firstborn sons of the Egyptians dead, but He had passed over the Israelites because they had put the blood on the doorpost. We learn a couple important truths in this passage and we want to think about here as we conclude today. First of all, God is the unquestionable victor. God is the unquestionable victor. When Moses first called Pharaoh to release Israel in chapter 5, here's Pharaoh's response. Who is the Lord that I should obey Him? Who is this guy? Uh, Why should I obey this God? I'm not going to obey Him. But after ten devastating plagues, Pharaoh is brought to his knees. He is humiliated, defeated, and even plundered. And he says to Moses on the way out, you can go, take everyone, including your livestock, and pray to your Lord that He would bless me. So no longer is it, who is this Lord that I should obey Him? Only one month earlier, Moses or, or Pharaoh had said that. He could not imagine that he would be defeated in such a great way. But God is not an ordinary warrior. God is the universal King. And He has universal rule over all things and limitless power. And so Pharaoh, just like every nation in human history, cannot resist God and win. God will always have His way. He is the unquestionable victor. Secondly, we are reminded that Jesus is our Passover Lamb. We stand on this side of the cross and we know that this Passover points towards something greater. And that is the Passover that that took place 1,475 years later. Why do we take so much time to study the the book of Exodus and the story of Israel's departure from Egypt? Right, if we don't have any Jewish background, what, what is the value in studying something like this? And the most profound picture that we see in this book is that God passes over the homes of Israel that have the blood on the doorpost. And so let's think about the significance of what this first Passover points to. This first Passover points to. First, it, it, it points to the fact that in order for us to have life, there was a lamb that had to die. If you remember Israel's responsibility from last week, they had to have a lamb slain that was one year old and without defect. That is, that there was nothing that that lamb had done to deserve that death, right? But that lamb had to die as a substitution. If a person wanted to be rescued from God's wrath, 
They could not do it in their own power. They could not do it by saying, well, God, I've actually done lots of good things, and so I'm not going to put the blood on the doorpost. I'm not going to kill the lamb like you've suggested. Instead, I'm just going to let you look at me and examine me and see if I deserve this death. If they did that, they would fail. They had to have the blood of the Lamb. There is no other way to satisfy God's wrath than to do it according to His plan. When John the Baptist came to pronounce the coming of the Lord, the Messiah, he he sees Jesus. And he says in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. You see, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is the one on uh, uh, he is the one who shed his blood and whose blood we need in order to be freed from the wrath of God. In order for us to have life, the lamb had to die. Secondly, we see that in order for us to have life, the lamb had to be perfect. The lamb had to be perfect. The lamb had to be without blemish, we saw last week, and with no broken bones. He could not be a lame lamb. He could not be unfavored. He had to be a choice lamb of perfect quality. In the same way, we can't just have anyone die for our sins. Do you realize that? If I loved you enough to die for you, my death would not bring atonement for your sins. Because I have sinned against the Holy God and my, my life is not perfect. I am not without blemish, without spot or wrinkle. God demands a perfect sacrifice. You can't die for your own sin and you can't have someone else die for your sin if they are flawed. Instead, you need someone who is perfect. I need someone who is perfect, without spot or wrinkle. And only Jesus can provide that atonement for our sin. Only He can be the perfect substitution for our sins. Thirdly, the means of our rescue is the blood of the Lamb. <clears throat> the means of our rescue is the blood of the Lamb. For Israel, God looked at the door of each house, and when He saw the blood, He passed over that house. He did not bring death to that house. Friend, God will accept nothing else from you than the finished work of Jesus Christ, the blood that represents the life and death that Jesus lived. He will not accept anything else. We sing a song that has as its chorus, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. There's nothing more that we can add to the work of Jesus Christ. We can't say well, Jesus did that, and now I need to do a few more things, and then God will accept me. The only way that God will accept us is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And then fourthly, our response to the Passover lamb ought to be faith and obedience. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There is a response that is expected of us that what Jesus has done on the cross should influence the way that we live. And so here we have a reference to Jesus as our Passover lamb. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. 
for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. So there's that idea we've been thinking about. Verse 8. What should this result in? Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Listen to Peter N.'s explanation of this verse. He says, Just as the Jews were required to be faithful to carry batches of dough without yeast from Egypt, so we must remember how we left in haste, haste from the sin and death that we once were under. And then we must live obediently to God who gave us His sin, His Son, excuse me, the Passover Lamb. We must live obediently to God. We leave in haste from the sin and death that we are fleeing, that God has spared us from. And just as we have been, so we also must, like Israel, live obediently to God who gave us His Son. The first Passover took place in the month of Nisan, 14, the 14th day, 1445 B.C. 1,475 years later to the exact day, Jews would have been in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover again. And it was on that day that Jesus was killed. Around the time that these lambs in in Egypt would have been killed. And His blood would provide atonement for the sins of all who would trust in Him. And that blood still provides atonement for all who will trust in Him today. All whose hearts have had the blood applied, God still passes over them and does not bring upon them the judgment that they deserve. God passes over us and does not bring the judgment that we deserve if we have the blood of Jesus applied to us. Down at the cross where my Savior died, down where for cleansing from sin I cried, there to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to His name. That blood, if it has not been applied to your life symbolically, then that blood can be applied through faith and repentance. The Bible calls us to turn from our sins and to turn to Jesus Christ and to Him alone. And if we trust that Jesus is enough to satisfy all the demands that God has for us and to free us from His wrath, the Bible says that we will be saved. We will be spared from God's wrath. That's something that you can do today if you have not. Would you bow with me together as we pray? Father, we're thankful for the exodus of Israel and for the symbolism that we see that it points to something greater. The exodus of us from sin and death. And we know that there was nothing in us inherently that deserved Your mercy and nothing that deserved Your grace. And that's why it is grace. It is unmerited, undeserved, and unwanted favor that You have come to us when we were Your enemies. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Lord, we thank You for that provision. Thank You for that substitution of atonement that we needed to be spared from Your wrath. Lord, because of our sin, we deserve Your full and righteous judgment. But because of Your grace, we receive the gift of Jesus Christ and eternal life. And we pray that You would help us to remember freshly the great love that You've shown to us. And for those who have not experienced it, they would be able to do that today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.